0: I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book, and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And then I turned to see that voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, "...clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white as wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice was as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars." And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. Write these things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. And Father, we just... Graciously and humbly, Lord, bow before you in this moment as we stand here asking, Lord, please, by the help and the supernatural power of your Holy Spirit, give us understanding to comprehend these scriptures and to hear what it is that your Spirit's trying to say to us as this part of your church through this particular portion of the Word of God. So as always, Lord, we ask by your Spirit, speak to us now through what your Spirit has already spoken in this written form We ask you to bless your word this day as we continue now to worship in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, having an experience is defined or referred to as an event or an occurrence or some type of an encounter with either something or someone that leaves an impression upon a person. And if you take the time, and I don't know if I really recommend it, but if you take the time and search the internet, it is quite interesting, as well as I have to admit sad, to see the lists that actually come up when you search best life experiences. Now, let me spare you the wasted time, because I wasted a little bit of my time doing that, for an illustration to begin this morning and tell you that what you're going to find is really not that interesting, and it's quite sad what's recommended as best life experiences. Let me spare you the time and tell you there is no greater, better, or more life-changing experience than to have an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. That should be top on the list. It's nowhere on the lists, nor is anything really that's meaningful or matters Things like skydiving and things that really, I looked at the list and I thought to myself, okay, I can't afford all those things and I don't have the courage to do all those things. <laughs> so, so that's a waste of time right there. Best life experiences. But how wonderful. The best life experience really is to have an encounter with the Lord. I mean, for example, that's what radically trans, uh, uh, transformed Paul. In his life from being what he once was, which was a man enslaved by pride and hatred and selfishness and cruelty and one encounter with Jesus. And he became a humble, sacrificial, loving, servant-hearted man. And it completely transformed his life. And here in Revelation chapter 1, we see John having a powerful experience with the Lord Jesus Christ. And remember, John already knew Jesus personally. He already believed in Jesus. He was already a follower of Jesus. For decades he had followed Jesus since the days of Jesus's earthly ministry in the flesh, but now John has a powerful spiritual experience with the glorified resurrected Lord in his eternal state and condition. And it happens, interestingly enough, we see here during a time that was very difficult in John's life. At one of the hardest circumstantial times in his life, as he's navigating hardship on the earth, John describes having this experience with the Lord. Now, After a brief introduction, which we saw together last time, telling those he's writing to in this record that he's sharing a revelation of Jesus Christ, that he was passing on to other servants of God supernaturally regarding things which must shortly take place, John then told them in verse 3, and blessed is he then who reads, and those who hear the words of this prophecy as well as keep the things, he says, which are written in it, for the time is near. Now, as we come to verse 9 this morning, John now starts to explain how this revelation happened, how it actually transpired in his own life. He says there, look with me back in verse 9, he says, I, John, both your companion in the tribulation and the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. So John indicates very clearly in verse 9 there what was going on during this time period when he received this revelation from the Spirit regarding the things of Jesus Christ and the things yet to come. And notice once again here, John identifies himself displaying tremendous humility. If you look at what he's saying there in verse 9, he says, I'm sharing with you, and look what he calls himself, as your brother and companion in the midst of these times of tribulation and hardship as we patiently endure together, waiting for our Lord Jesus Christ. That word companion means a co-participant. And to me, this is very interesting, as John here, remember, think of his, if you want to call it his spiritual resume. John was someone who in his teenage years met Jesus Christ and began to follow him in his teenage years, and now John is somewhere in his mid-90s. So this man has been walking with Jesus from his teenage years all the way into his 90s. He's one of the original 12 special selected chosen disciples who then became apostles of Jesus Christ. He walked with Jesus for three plus years in the earthly ministry of our Lord, hearing every sermon, seeing all the miracles, being empowered with that Greek word exousia, the authoritative power to go out doing healings and casting out demons as he served together with Jesus. He was a church leader for multiple decades He served faithfully in pastoral ministry. He was used to record scripture on multiple occasions. And then on top of it, now here he is receiving divine visions and supernatural revelations from the Lord. And yet when he refers to himself, he doesn't refer to himself as the great apostle John the Revelator. What does he call himself? He says, I'm your brother, and I'm your companion. In the earlier part of chapter one, he just called himself a servant. And I love it. These are terms that just speak of humility and equality with everyone else in the body of Christ and how beautiful to see this man, though he had incredible spiritual experience under his belt, incredible authority from the Lord in in really the calling that God gave to him. And yet, beautiful to see this older saint as he matured spiritually, he developed in humility. Let me say that again. As he matured spiritually, he developed and grew in humility. He became more and more humble the further that his life and journey went on with the Lord. And John wants them to know here in verse 9 how he himself was enduring hardship Even as a spiritual leader, he wasn't immune to the hardships of others. He says, look, I'm your companion, a co-participant with you, my brothers, my sisters. He says, verse 9, in this hard earthly journey with tribulation and difficulty that we're all enduring on this earth, longing for the kingdom of God, patiently awaiting the coming of Jesus. That word tribulation he uses there to describe what they're undergoing is a term in the Greek that refers to a severe crushing experience. As they would drag the threshing sledge across the wheat to, to break it up. That's the term there, a crushing circumstantial experience. And sometimes that's what this earthly life can be like. There can be crushing just crushing, overwhelming, circumstantial experiences of pain and hardship to different degrees that we all go through. Jesus told us in John 16, in this world, this world, there's the emphasis, you will have tribulation, that a part of this earthly existence in a fallen world cursed by sin dominated by the devil he says part of the earthly journey will be tribulation crushing hardships difficulties hard times to go through in different degrees and different seasons as we patiently wait for the kingdom of jesus christ and that term that john uses there in verse 9 patience is a term that doesn't speak of waiting patiently. It's a term literally that speaks more of perseverance. The term he uses there speaks of enduring under a heavy load. So the crushing experience upon us, the patience and waiting for the kingdom of God to come, is persevering onward under the crushing heavy load and not letting it just destroy us. Interesting, Paul, when he was writing in the book of Acts, said through many tribulations we must go through before we enter the kingdom of God. That on the journey from this earth into the eternal dimension, we must go through, it's a part of this earthly existence, many different tribulations until we get to the kingdom, and then there's no more tribulations. (laughs) Then there's no more hardships, no more crushing experiences. That's what the end A book of Revelation will show us, but because we're on a fallen earth now, there's sickness and struggles, and there's hardships and stresses, and there's death and suffering, and then add on to that as Christians, we're living in a world that is going in opposition to God and His ways. And so we're like Salmon streaming upstream, if you would, going opposed to the current of an evil world system with a very anti-Christian spirit as we're pressing onward, waiting for the kingdom of God. And there was severe persecution and mistreatment of Christians in the first century under the Roman Empire, and that same anti-Christian spirit exists in our modern generation as well. So when we choose to follow Jesus Christ In a sense, we don't tell people when we share the gospel, you're signing up for more struggles. (laughs) Your eternity will be secured. You're going to one day get out of, but here's the thing, you're going to one day get out of torment and pain and suffering for all eternity, where it never ceases. Imagine, for you and I, the most hell we will ever experience is now on this earth. For those who reject Jesus Christ, this earth, it's a bummer to think of, this earth is the most heavenly existence they will ever know. For they will suffer forever, forever and ever, constantly, unceasing, no escape from it. And John says, we're going through this now. And notice he tells them clearly in verse 9, faithfully following the Lord can bring even more hardships. Because look what he says, verse 9, the second half of it. He says, I was on the island that's called Patmos for, here's the reason, he was there for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, when John says here he's on the island of Patmos, he's not on the island of Patmos enjoying sun and relaxation. He's not on a resort location somewhere down in the you know, Caribbean somewhere, sightseeing during his retirement years enjoying, if you would, some sunshine and some R&R, kind of rewarding himself for his life's hard work in his 90s, taking in and indulging his golden years on a nice island. That's not what John's describing here. The island of Patmos, we know, was a prison colony, an island we may think of today, we, some of us know what the island of Alcatraz was, if that gives you a word picture in your mind there. It was a prison colony as an island where people were basically exiled, or we might say banished to, and forced to do hard labor, breaking rocks and so forth, under the reign of the cruel Roman emperor. Domitian, who was a very insecure Roman ruler and a cruel man who punished anyone who interfered with his ways. And John tells us, we're not given all the details, but he does tell us there in verse nine, the basics of why he got exiled to this prison colony where he's there being subjected to suffering and hardship in his senior years. He tells us it was because he was just faithfully serving the Lord. You see what he says there in our text in verse nine? He says, I was put there for the word of God. That is because he stood for the truth of the word of God and probably because he was preaching and sharing and teaching the word of God. So because he stood for God's word up until his 90s, because he was faithfully teaching God's word up until his 90s, and because he was giving faithful testimony of Jesus Christ, telling people the truth about Jesus, That gained John the punishment of being put onto this prison colony of Patmos where there he's suffering hardship. Now, I have to imagine, again, the way we logically think, here you are, you serve the Lord faithfully. From the time you're a teenager, you walk with Jesus when none of the other teenager friends will because they're too cool to walk with Jesus. But you accomplished that. That's a big accomplishment. For those of you who are teenagers this morning and you faithfully walk with Jesus because you got backbone and courage and you care about what's real and what's right rather than trying to have the approval of your friends, that's huge. That's a huge accomplishment. That's just John's first accomplishment. Then he just keeps walking with the Lord. He gets used by the Lord. He's doing ministry for the Lord. He's providing spiritual leadership. He's being used to write scripture and, 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 and all these things that all the way up until his 90s, decades of faithfully walking with Jesus, being used by Jesus. And where does he end up in his 90s? <laughs> for that, he ends up on a prison colony, suffering in the hardest years of his life, breaking rock in his 90s. And, and, and human logic, right, has to say to us, wait, wait, whoa, hit pause there. That guy deserves some recreational rest and, and relax. I mean, that guy earned his reward, man. He deserves a nice retirement that we should set that guy up. I mean, he deserves some reward for all that he's done. And I, I don't know, but was John thinking, Lord, I faithfully serve you all these years? And after faithfully serving you, this is how my life ends up? Now, I know we've never thought that before, but I wonder if John thought that. I wonder if in his humanity, he thought to himself, this is how it ends up? After I faithfully served you, did his mind struggle with that? I don't know. Or did John manage to overcome that mental struggle and maybe reason out in spiritual maturity and realize, you know, I'm not going to let my mind go there, Lord. I know you. And what I am going to do is realize that part of this earthly journey includes hardships until we get to heaven. And so if I'm here suffering because I was faithful to you, I'll endure that. And I'll endure it for your kingdom's sake. And I'm not going to get bitter or angry with you, God. Philippians 129, I'm sure it's your favorite Bible promise, says this. For to you, it's been granted on behalf of Jesus Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. The Bible says that. As we believe in him, another part of that is we share in the fellowship of the sufferings of Christ. And Jesus said, blessed are they when they persecute you. And so to some degree, all who live godly in Christ Jesus, the Bible says, will suffer persecution. And so part of us honoring the Lord at times means in a degree, sometimes we inherit more difficulty and resistance and hardship just because of taking a stand for the Lord in our life. And here's the amazing thing. As John is in this time of circumstantial hardship, he's in a difficult place in his life. He's going through hardship. But while in that hard time, I'll tell you one thing I'm certain John certainly was doing as he's banished on the island of Patmos. He certainly probably to a much deeper degree in the loneliness and the difficulty and the isolation, he's depending upon the Lord in a way probably like he's never had to before. I imagine just like you and I, his prayer life is intensified. If he's got copies of the scrolls of portions of Scripture, he's looking into the Word of God, hanging on every word like daily bread, wanting to get by. And in the midst of this very, very hard time, it's in that situation that he has this experience with the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's enabled to come into a much greater understanding of who Jesus is. And Jesus allows himself to be seen more deeply and gives John this encounter supernaturally with the Lord, which benefits him as well as benefits all of us because we're sitting here reading it this morning a scripture. And I think it's just a great reminder how God does have wonderful ways, though life can be hard, to sometimes give and bring some of the most glorious spiritual experiences in our lives in some of the hardest earthly experiences while we're on this earth. That is, we're navigating hardship and difficulty and to a degree, we're a little more sensitive, we're a little more desperate, a little more disconnected from the world and all of its distractions, how sometimes the Lord shows us some of the most incredible things in the hardest times. And we have some of the most wonderful encounters with his presence and with Jesus in some of the most difficult occasions. It may be hard, but from heaven's perspective, it's not a bad trade-off because we're eternal people and we're going to be with the Lord forever. Well, as John goes on in verse 10, he then tells us how this all transpired. He says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying... Jesus speaking, I'm Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and then send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. And then he lists out the seven different churches it was to go to. So as John's seeking and worshiping the Lord, it tells us here that he hears a voice and he tells us verse 10 that the way that it happened was he says it was on the Lord's day. Now, That's the only time that phrase shows up in the Bible, no doubt referring to a special day set apart for the Lord, a day that was his, the idea is, a day to honor the Lord, to spend one's day seeking the Lord, worship, song, prayer, his word. The picture is there just a, a time that you set aside a day to seek the Lord and spend time with the Lord. Now, we know both from Scripture as well as from historical tradition that the early Christians in the first generation began to routinely assemble on Sunday, predominantly because it was the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And so the Lord's day, if you would, that they set aside for the Lord to worship him, to seek him, to gather together, to study his word, to pray, to sing, that traditionally that was on the first day of the week or Sunday because it celebrated the victorious resurrection of Jesus on that day. Now, that being said, New Testament doctrine teaches that we are not under any law to gather and worship on a specific day of the week as New Testament followers of Jesus. The Bible does not teach that the Bible does not require us on a set day to legalistically gather like the Jews were commanded with Sabbath that was a legitimate thing under Mosaic law but we're not under the law and so there's no command the Bible says one man esteems every day alike another man esteems one day above another and and the idea is on a conviction standpoint it's about what you do with your heart now by way of routineness gathering on a Sunday does seem to traditionally be the day that the church has most routinely gathered it works it's the day our lord resurrected upon for many people they're not often working as much on that day and so it tends to be the day and it seems that this was the day that john was still spending time with the lord there and as he's worshiping and seeking the lord on the lord's day he says in verse 10 i was in the spirit Seeming to imply I was more conscious of the realm of the Spirit. I was drawn into the the dimension of the Spirit. My heart was more sensitive and inclined. And John sees things now into the spiritual dimension. As he's worshiping the Lord, seeking the Lord, he's brought into the realm of the Spirit in a greater way. Which would mean to some degree, if he's brought into the realm of the Spirit, he's brought into a realm that goes outside of time which is the realm that we're in, which is why John throughout the book of Revelation sees things all the way out past where he's at down into days beyond he's currently in. And as he's in the spirit on the Lord's day, he says there that I heard behind me a loud voice As a trumpet. So John, notice he's going to now start to use, and he'll continue as we go through the verses to start using lots of simile and metaphor. He's going to say, It was as this, or it was like this. And again, he's trying to describe his experience in human terms the best that he can. So he said, I heard behind me a loud voice as of, it was like or as a trumpet. Now, In the Old Testament, the loud blast of a trumpet, and many times they used, like over here to my left, a shofar horn, the loud blast of a trumpet was something that they used in the ancient culture, and particularly among the congregation of Israel, to get attention among God's people. The trumpet blast was to awaken them or to alert them to some degree with a loud blast of the trumpet. So that if they were sleeping, they were woken up. If they're occupied working or doing something, it would get their attention and they would focus in to hear what needed to be known or receive direction. And John says here, I was on the Lord's day seeking the Lord. I was in tune with the spirit and I heard this voice behind me like a trumpet. He's saying it was loud and clear. It was very evident and it was so strong and clear that I heard the Lord speaking. Now, when I see John describe this, I think what a beautiful pattern as well as picture that really is available to all of us in the same way because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That you and I have the same opportunity to be in worship and seek Jesus on the Lord's day, and that as we're worshiping the Lord in spirit and truth, Oftentimes, when we are doing that, there's a much better sensitivity to hear loud and clear the voice of the Lord. I can't tell you how many times over my life, as I've been a Christian, as I've chosen on the Lord's day to routinely give that day to the Lord and go be with the Lord's people and worship in the Spirit, how those are some of the times in my life when I heard so loud and so clear something that the Lord was wanting to say to me. And his voice became very evident in what he was trying to tell me. And John tells us what this powerful voice said to him in verse 11. I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. So clearly the voice identifies in language, which are titles that reveal that it was the Lord Jesus. The one who always has the first word. The one who always has the last word. And even their claiming deity calling himself the first and the last, because Isaiah 44 says, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, I am the last, and beside me there is no God. That's Jehovah God, and now Jesus uses the same title, taking that title to himself, showing that he was Jehovah God, he was God dwelling in flesh, and told John what you see, verse 11, write it in a book, and send it to these seven churches. So we know John was literally in a vision. He was seeing actual images and scenes, and he was to record it, to write it down, and then send this to these seven different churches, which we'll see in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 in the messages given to each church. Going on, verse 12, John then says, Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst, he says, right in the middle of the seven lampstands was one like the Son of God. So as John hears this powerful voice, he turns around now to see the personage from where this powerful voice was stemming from, perhaps being very familiar with the voice of Jesus. He heard Jesus say a lot of things when he walked on earth. And perhaps being very familiar, recognizing this voice loud and clear, he turns around. And as he's turning around, perhaps anticipating to see Jesus as he once knew him in the flesh. And yet he turns around and instead he sees Jesus in all his brilliant radiance as the eternal glorified king in the eternal dimension. And as John turns around, we're told there in verses 12 and 13 that when he turned, he saw seven golden lampstands. So seven golden lampstands. In the Old Testament, remember, lampstands were essential to provide light in the midst of darkness, and they often used lampstands, remember, to help minister in the tabernacle or the temple in the house of God and it was because there was no wind there were no windows there was no natural light coming in so these lampstands uh, typically again kind of like the seven you know stick lampstand over here to my left that they were used they were lit up and they provided illumination in God's house to help with the worship of God to help with the ministry of God and here we now see these seven lampstands as John turns around and symbolically we don't have to guess symbolically here what the lampstands are Because we read, if you glance down in verse 20, Jesus gave us commentary (laughs) right in the Bible. He said there in verse 20, look at it. He says, those seven lampstands, the end of verse 20, are what? The seven churches. So, we know, John, here's what those lampstands represent. They represent the seven churches. Now, notice, In the midst of the churches, in the midst of the seven churches, we see one like the Son of Man, we're told here in our verses. One like the Son of Man. Son of Man is a messianic title, comes from Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel says, I was watching and behold one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. So we know that term son of man was a messianic title of the deliverer that God was sending to his people that they were waiting for the Messiah. That term son of man as a title in the gospels is one of the most favorite statements that Jesus uses to refer to himself. He constantly referred to himself as the son of man because he was the Messiah promised as well as that he was the perfect ideal man. Jesus was the epitome of what the perfect man was to be as the sinless one. And notice where we now find Jesus standing. I love the picture that John gets here. We see Jesus, verse 13, standing right in the midst of those seven lampstands or those seven churches. John turns around and he sees Jesus right in the center among the churches. He sees the presence of the glorified Jesus standing in the midst of his church. And what a beautiful place to see our Lord, because again, I think that's the ideal spiritually. He's seeing something in the spiritual realm. And what he sees is Jesus at the center amidst his churches. Right at the center, because that's, folks, how it's supposed to be. The person of Jesus. The presence of Jesus is to be central to church life, not all the other stuff that church life's often made about. The person of Jesus—it's about the presence of Jesus. That's the centrality of what church life is supposed to be about. Too often, I I fear that church life becomes too much about the church, the particular church, how cool it is, how trendy it is. What and Jesus almost becomes like the mascot. No, that's completely wrong. He's the chief shepherd. He's the head of the church. He's the whole purpose we come to church for, for his presence and to meet with the Lord. If you struggle at times, like every human fleshly person does, with struggling with, well, why go to church? I don't know if I feel like, listen, the only reason you should mainly come to church is for Jesus. Not because, oh, they'll notice if I wasn't there and then they might text me this week and that's gonna be awkward. No, you come for Jesus. Jesus said, when two or three are gathered in my name, I am in the midst. Jesus is among his church. We come to church for Jesus, to worship Jesus, to spend time with Jesus, to disconnect from the world, believing his presence is among us, that he will speak to us, that we're here to worship him and to give him honor and glory as our Savior and as our Lord. Now, as John goes forward, he starts to give this detailed visual description of what he saw when he looked upon the glorified Lord Jesus in the eternal dimension. He says, verse 13, going on, he was clothed with a garment down to his feet and girded about the chest was a golden band. So notice, he looks very much like one of the Old Testament priests, as John sees him, like one of the high priests. He sees this long garment with a golden sash across his chest. So Jesus looks much like, when John sees him in this glorified moment, like a great high priest who the Israelites knew as their mediator. And in the book of Hebrews, Jesus is greatly described there as the greatest and most superior and perfect great high priest for all mankind. The one who is now our perfect mediator. And notice the sash across his chest was gold. Gold was the color of kings or divinity. It also was a color of purity, the purity of gold. And so Jesus now pictured as this great high priest, far superior to any human great high priest because he's completely pure. He's divine. He is God himself as the son of God providing mediatory work between divinity and humanity the complete and long-term great high priest, the final high priest, Hebrews 4 says it this way, therefore, since we have a great high priest who's ascended into heaven, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to this faith, the Christian faith that we profess. For we don't have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way just as we are, yet did not sin. The sinless, perfect high priest. Every other high priest failed once in a while. And high priest ministry ultimately failed because eventually every high priest did what? Died. Oh, man, this high priest, he's one of the best high priests we've ever had. I love his messages. Man, I love when he prays for me. He visits us. The other high priest, he never visited us when we were sick. He's a really great high priest. He's the best. I've never been more connected to God than since this high priest has been our spiritual leader. But then guess what happened? He died. A human spiritual leader could only last so long. But Jesus came. He's the ultimate high priest, He's the complete, His ministry never ends. He can help us with our relationship with God in an unceasing way and in a perfect way constantly and continually. That's why Hebrews 4 says, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence to receive mercy and grace to help in our time of need. We have the perfect high priest, the the absolute best high priest, and this is how John sees Jesus in that way. Going on verse 14, he said, and his head and his hair were white as wool as white as snow so here the image is of jesus as we sang this morning in our song in fact as the ancient of days with this white hair daniel 7 refers to him as that way the ancient of days symbolizing here his eternality as well as his infinite wisdom as one who's aged and been around for a long time so the incredible amount of understanding that jesus has the incredible amount of infinite wisdom as the eternal God that he has. So we can trust Jesus' wisdom as the ancient of days. We can trust when we don't understand what's going on or why life's going this way or what's going, we can trust you as the ancient of days have infinite wisdom. And I don't understand how it's going or what, but I know this, you're the ancient of days and you have wisdom that surpasses any human wisdom, and somehow you're wisely orchestrating something that I just don't understand yet, and we can just kind of trust that ancient wisdom, that incredible wisdom that he has. He's been helping humanity for thousands of years. He knows how to navigate us through things on this earth. He knows how to coordinate things with his wisdom, and when we need wisdom, we can go to the Ancient of Days. This is who we seek wisdom from, and he can give us incredible eternal wisdom His eyes, John says, going on verse 14, were like a flame of fire. The picture is the burning, all-penetrating gaze of our Lord to see through everything. His powerful ability so that there's nothing that he cannot see. It's almost like the idea they're like having this laser x-ray vision. His eyes like a burning flame of fire. There's nothing hidden from our Lord's sight. Men can hide things from one another, but Jesus, his penetrating gaze, he can see through everything. He can see everything that's going on. Nothing is covered, nothing is hidden. He knows what's going on. It, it describes his omniscience, that he's the all-knowing one. He's fully aware of everything. Verse 15, he says, and then his feet, when I looked, were like fine brass or bronze, as if ref- uh, like refined in a furnace. We know that bronze in the Old Testament was always a metal representing judgment. And here now, John looks, and perhaps again, he thinks of the brazen altar. Remember the brazen or bronze altar in the Old Testament? That's where the animals were brought and sacrificed and where God's judgment would fall for atonement for sin. And now John turns, and Jesus, who he once saw his feet in a body of flesh, pierced and bleeding with a nail through them, as Jesus was being what? Judged for the sin of the world, and he was embracing the judgment of God for my sin and your sin, bearing the wrath of God and God's judgment against the sin of the world, so that we could be spared judgment and hell ourselves. Now John sees Jesus, and now those same Human feet that were once bleeding in flesh, he sees them in their glorified eternal state, and now they're like bronze refined in the fire. And what John is now seeing is this same Jesus who provided salvation with a nail through his feet originally, he now sees Jesus standing with bronze feet refined in a fire like the judge of all humanity. Because this same one who was judged for sin now is the one who's entitled to judge sinners. He's the rightful judge to judge all mankind. Jesus said in John 5, Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment unto the Son. And Jesus himself alone is able to one day say to any human soul that's rejected his work upon the cross and doesn't receive his forgiveness and salvation that's freely offered if we believe and receive, he will be the one as the rightful judge who can say, depart from me. I never knew you. And he will be the one to bring down the ultimate judgment and sentence to, in a sense, cast people into the lake of fire. Now, as John turns, remember, he sees Jesus standing in the midst of the seven churches, which I think is also a good reminder to us as well. And we'll see this in chapters two and three. Jesus, as the rightful judge, is standing in the midst of the church, making judgments of the condition of the church. And we'll see him making judgments of the conditions of the church in chapters 2 and 3 specifically. Verse 15 goes on to tell us, and his voice, the sound of his voice, was as the sound of many waters. Again, Ezekiel 43 verse 2 tells us God's voice was like the sound of many waters. And now as he hears the voice of Jesus, his voice, John says, you know what? I know I was hearing the voice of God. It was like the sound of many waters. The picture is like a powerful, let's say, waterfall, or a powerful ocean surge, the waves, or like a rushing river that's running fast and hard. If you've ever been by a powerful flow of water, maybe some of you have been to Niagara Falls, or maybe you've been down at the ocean, the kind of the rage of the ocean water, or a fast river, is it not rather loud? It's incredibly loud. Fast-surging water is so loud that what does it do? It drowns out all other sounds, right? Talk to people who have gone to Niagara Falls. They say, when you're at Niagara Falls, you cannot hear anything because the sound is so overpowering. It just drowns out every other voice, and it drowns out every other sound. And John said, that's what it was like when I heard his voice. It was like every other noise was just drowned out and all I could hear was his voice. It was like every other voice. The voices in my own head, I have those, do you have those? The voices of other people, when I heard his voice, he said, it was so crystal clear, it was like all the other noise shut off and I just heard his voice speaking to me. And John says, this is the beauty of what it's like when our Lord speaks into our lives and he says verse 16 he had in his right hand seven stars now again the in the right hand the right hand's the place of authority it speaks of power notice who is in Jesus's right hand again we know from verse 20 what did he say the angels of the seven churches we don't have to guess what this is now here's the quandary if that's a literal reference to angels how wonderful to know that each different local church has its own potentially assigned angel. That's pretty cool. Keep and watch. Talk about a great security guy at the front door. If an angel's assigned to the church, what a neat thing. Now, that term angel in the Greek, when it's used in other places, it's just a term in the Greek that refers to a messenger. So it's describing a divinely appointed messenger of each of the seven churches. Some believe that could be a reference to the pastor in each local church that was the divinely appointed messenger to the church of Ephesus, to the church of Laodicea, to the church of Smyrna. The idea is the man who's been assigned by God to be his messenger to bring his message by the Spirit to the congregations. Now, if that's the picture there, I don't mind that one either. Personally, what a beautiful picture to be the Lord's messenger. And to know that you're in the right hand of Jesus to protect you, and to hopefully trust that it is the Lord, as we're in his hand as his messenger, directly controlling our messages that we deliver, and that he is guiding that whole process. And John says, going on in verse 16, and out of his mouth went a sharp two edged sword. The sharp two edged sword was an instrument that was used in warfare to cut through the flesh of man and to put an end to the fleshly existence of man. And we know in God's word that the double-edged sword symbolically is often used as a metaphor to picture the word of God. Hebrews 4, the word of God is living, active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Ephesians 6 says the same thing. So here's this picture of coming out of Jesus' mouth, the word of God. The word of God coming forth, speaking coming out of his mouth. And John says in his countenance, his overall appearance, it was like the sun shining in its strength. The illustration of the brilliant, radiant glory of Jesus, because all of heaven's glory as the ruler of heaven is radiating off of Jesus here in his glorified condition, like a bright, strong sunlight you can't even look into that's overwhelming. Now, look what happens as John has this encounter with the glorified Lord. He says, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. (laughs) Now, I want you to notice that John is not bowing in humility to be reverent there. That's not what John's doing. Oh, man, I should bow on, I should get on my face before. That's not what's happening. John is being overwhelmed. He's thrown off of his feet. He is just undone by the power of the radiant glory of Jesus as the eternal king of heaven and finds himself, if you would, flattened on his face, feeling like the life has just been taken out of him as a result of an encounter with God. Now, when you look through the Bible, that's what always happened to people when they had any kind of an encounter with God. When people had a genuine encounter with God, they weren't hyper-energetic and jumping all around. They were subdued and incredibly humbled. They were broken. That was the end result. Again, John has this encounter. He says, I fell at his feet, but look what Jesus does. He says, he laid his right hand on me, saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. So here's Jesus, all powerful, king of glory, incredible strength. And yet he compassionately lays his hand on his servant, connects with him in this very tender way. Again, just if I could just quickly diverge here, it's going to tell us later in the book of Revelation that, that God will wipe every tear. Away from her eyes. Just ponder. The power of that hand. And then he's. Tenderly wiping tears. From people's face. And he touches John. And he says to John. As John is terrified in his presence. He says John. Don't be afraid. You don't have to be afraid. The power I have John. You don't ever have to be afraid. As my servant. I'm for you. I have the power of all of heaven's glory. I know you're nervous or anxious, but John, there's nothing outside of my power or control. And it's almost as if to let him remember that. He says to him, John, I'm the first and the last. I'm he who lives. And look what he says, verse 18. I was dead. The language literally is I became dead. I was alive. I became dead. I entered into the death experience But behold, I am alive forevermore. And then Jesus gets Pentecostal. Amen. As he speaks to John, he says, John, here's what I want to tell you why you don't have to be afraid. The most terrifying thing in human existence that people have no control over, death, the afterlife. He says, I was alive, I chose. Remember Jesus said, John 10, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. I chose to become dead, to enter into the realm of of death, and then to overcome the power of death, and I'm alive forevermore, and John, I have conquered the greatest fear of mankind, the doorway of death and Hades and hell, and look, so many people live in life terrified to die, it's one of the greatest fears of humanity, but if you know Jesus or you come to Jesus, you don't have to be afraid to die it's just a doorway to enter into the next realm for the christian and john says here i have the keys look what he says verse 18 i have the keys of hades that's the realm of the dead and i have the keys to death the person who has the keys right has authority and they have control over access the key to my home means I have authority and I have access. Jesus has the keys over things like the death experience, the realm of the dead, eternity. He holds the keys, the authority. He is the access point. And look, he doesn't hold the key because he wants to lock people into hell. He wants to do the exact opposite. He wants to unlock people whose eternal destiny currently is sealed up to go to hell and to unlock that and set us free and to give us access into heaven. And he holds those keys. He has that incredible authority. What a wonderful thing. Now, look at verse 19. It's sort of our hinge to where we then go forward in our study of Revelation as we conclude. He says, write these things which you've seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this here you get from jesus the simple outline of the book of revelation there is the simple outline write the things which you've seen already chapter one the revelation of the glorified lord and then secondly second breakup write the things which are that will be chapters two and three the age of the church And then he says, thirdly, write the things that will take place after this. After what? After the things which are, that is, after the age of the church. So write the things which you've seen, chapter 1, the glorified Lord. Write the things which are right now, chapters 2 and 3, the age of the church. And then also write these things which will take place after the age of the church, Revelation chapter 4 through Revelation 22, once the church is removed, come up here, and then everything that begins to happen after the age of the church and the church has been removed. What a beautiful thing to have God have given this to us to understand. And let me leave you with this final thought. What if just like John, what if just like John, like all the rest of us, personal hardships on this earth at times are the earthly trade-off to get to know a little bit more about Jesus, to have a little deeper encounter with the Lord. May seem confusing here, but eternally, it's a really great trade-off because we're eternal people and we're gonna worship forever around this throne. Let's stand together.